Section 18 of the Science History of the Universe, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 3, edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Electricity, Chapter 2. Electrostatics, Atmospheric Electricity. Part 2. A short description of the principal static machines which have been developed is taken from Professor S. P. Thompson's Elementary Lessons in Electricity and Magnetism. For the purpose of procuring larger supplies of electricity than can be obtained by the rubbing of a rod of glass or shellac, electric machines have been devised. All electric machines consist of two parts, one for producing, the other for collecting the electric charges. Experience has shown that the quantities of plus and minus electrification developed by friction upon the two surfaces rubbed against one another depend upon the amount of friction, upon the extent of the surfaces rubbed, and also upon the nature of the substances used. The earliest form of electric machine was devised by Otto von Gerich of Magdeburg and consisted of a globe of sulfur fixed upon a spindle and pressed with the dry surface of the hands while being made to rotate. With this he discovered the existence of electric sparks and the repulsion of similarly electrified bodies. Sir Isaac Newton replaced von Gerich's globe of sulfur by a globe of glass. A little later the form of the machine was improved by various German electricians. Von Bose added a collector or prime conductor in the shape of an iron tube, supported by a person standing on cakes of resin to insulate them, or suspended by silken strings. Winkler of Leipzig substituted a leathern cushion for the hand as a rubber, and Gordon of Erfurt rendered the machine more easy of construction by using a glass cylinder instead of a glass globe. The electricity was led from the excited cylinder or globe to the prime conductor by a metallic chain, which hung over against the globe. A pointed collector was not employed until after Franklin's famous researches on the action of points. About 1760, Delafond, Planta, Ramsden, and Cuthbertson constructed machines having glass plates instead of cylinders. All frictional machines are, however, now obsolete, having in recent years been quite superseded by the modern influence machines. The cylinder electric machine consists of a glass cylinder mounted on a horizontal axis capable of being turned by a handle. Against it is pressed from behind a cushion of leather stuffed with horsehair, the surface of which is covered with a powdered amalgam of zinc or tin. A flap of silk attached to the cushion passes over the cylinder, covering its upper half. In front of the cylinder stands the prime conductor, which is made of metal, and usually of the form of an elongated cylinder with hemispherical ends mounted upon a glass stand. At the end of the prime conductor nearest the cylinder is fixed a rod bearing a row of fine metallic spikes resembling in form a rake. The other end usually carries a rod terminated in a brass ball or knob. When the handle is turned, the friction between the glass and the amalgam-coated surface of the rubber produces a copious electrical action, electricity appearing as a plus charge on the glass, leaving the rubber with a minus charge. 
The prime conductor collects this charge by the following process. The plus charge being carried around on the glass acts inductively on the long insulated conductor, repelling a plus charge to the far end and leaving the nearer end minusly charged. The effect of the row of points is to emit a minusly electrified wind toward the attracting plus charge upon the glass which is neutralized thereby. The glass thus arriving at the rubber in a neutral condition, ready to be again excited. This action of the points is sometimes described, though less correctly, by saying that the points collect the plus charge from the glass. If it is desired to collect also the minus charge of the rubber, the cushion must be supported on an insulating stem and provided at the back with a metallic knob. It is, however, more usual to use only the plus charge and to connect the rubber by a chain to the earth, so allowing the minus charge to be neutralized. The friction of a jet of stream issuing from a boiler through a wooden nozzle generates electricity. In reality, it is the particles of condensed water in the jet which are directly concerned. Sir W. Armstrong, who investigated this source of electricity, constructed a powerful apparatus known as the hydroelectrical machine, capable of producing enormous quantities of electricity and yielding sparks five or six feet long. The collector consisted of a row of spikes placed in the path of the stream jets issuing from wooden nozzles, and was supported together with a brass ball which served as a prime conductor upon a glass pillar. After the invention of the electrophorus by Volta, the idea naturally suggested itself of performing mechanically the several operations of bringing the plate near the charged bed, of touching its upper side, and of removing it to a large metallic body where the charge could be stored. One of the first of these mechanical arrangements was the revolving doubler of Nicholson invented in 1788, consisting of a revolving apparatus in which an insulated carrier can be brought into the presence of an electrified body, there touched for an instant while under influence, then carried forward with its acquired charge toward another body, to which it imparts its charge, and which in turn acts inductively on it, giving it an opposite charge, which it can convey to the first body, thus increasing its initial charge at every rotation. In the modern influence machines, two principles are embodied. One, the principle of influence, namely that a conductor touched while under influence acquires a charge of the opposite kind. And two, the principle of reciprocal accumulation. This principle must be carefully noted. Let there be two insulated conductors, A and B, electrified ever so little, one positively, the other negatively. Let a third insulated conductor, C, which will be called a carrier, be arranged to move so that it first approaches A and then B, and so forth. If touched while under the influence of the small positive charge on A, it will acquire a small negative charge. Suppose that it then moves on and gives this negative charge to B. Then let it be touched while under the influence of B, so acquiring a small positive charge. When it returns toward A, let it give up this positive charge to A, thereby increasing its positive charge. Then A will act more powerfully, and on repeating the former operations, both B and A will become more highly charged. Each accumulates the charges derived by influence from the other. This is the fundamental action of the machines in question. 
The modern influence machines date from 1860, when C.F. Varley produced a form with six carriers mounted on a rotating disc of glass. This was followed in 1865 by the machine of Holtz and that of Topler, and in 1867 by those of Lord Kelvin, the replenisher and the mouse mill. The latest forms are those of Mr. James Wimshurst. At the present time, these machines are used to a limited extent as a source of high voltages for such work as operating vacuum tubes, X-ray apparatus, and the like. But their uncertainty of action, small power, and the irregularity of their discharge make the high-tension transformer, or Ruhmkorff coil, preferable. Cuneus, a pupil of Muschenbroek, a celebrated physicist of the 18th century, was one day trying to electrify some water in a wide-necked bottle. For this purpose, he held the bottle in one hand, after having placed in the bottle a metal rod connected to the machine. When he thought that the water was sufficiently electrified, he tried to remove the iron rod with one hand without losing his hold of the bottle with the other hand. He received a shock that surprised him. Muschenbroek repeated Cuneus's experiment, but the shock that he received in his arms, shoulders, and chest was so great that he lost consciousness and was so frightened that in writing to Remur about this then new discovery, he wrote that for nothing in the world, not even for the crown of France, would he go through it again. But some other physicists were less fearful. Alamon, Lemonoir, Winkler, and the Abbe Nollet varied the experiment in all sorts of ways, and so a new piece of apparatus was added to the electrical science. This apparatus, called the Leyden jar, is named after the place where the experiment was first performed in 1746. The Leyden jar is only a form of electric condenser, the essential properties of which have already been explained in connection with Maxwell's theory. It is again to Franklin that science is indebted for an experiment which shows where the charge in such a jar resides. Franklin constructed a Leyden jar having both internal and external metallic coatings removable. Having fitted them to the jar, he connected the inner coating with an electrical machine and the outer coating with the earth. He charged the jar in the usual manner. He then separated the metallic coatings on the jar, and examining each one for electrification, he found the metallic coatings practically unelectrified, while the glass jar proved to be highly electrified. Upon replacing the coatings in the jar, he was able to obtain a bright spark, just as though the coatings had not been removed. This experiment clearly proved that the important part of such a Leyden jar, or condenser, was the glass, or the dielectric, and that the function of the conducting coatings was merely to spread the charge over the glass. Taking such a view, it will be readily seen that the larger the jar, the greater is the quantity of electricity which may be stored therein. Large jars, however, are often inconvenient to handle, so that a battery of such jars is used, having their inner coatings all connected together to form one large coating and the outer ones similarly connected. Figure 10 shows such a battery, the outer coatings being connected by the tinfoil lining of the box. From time to time it has been attempted to use for the dielectric materials other than glass, and thousands of condensers using paraffined paper are in use on modern telephone and telegraph circuits. Larger condensers are used on power circuits. 
None of these other materials is, however, as satisfactory as glass, being liable to be disrupted if the pressure of the charge is too great. The opportunities for using condensers to advantage are rapidly increasing at present, and considerable energy is being directed toward their development. The desirable qualities of such a condenser are that its dielectric should be capable of containing a very large charge, that it should stand very high electric pressure without disruption, and that its coatings should be in the most intimate contact with the dielectric. In some recent condensers made in Switzerland, the metal coatings are made by chemically depositing silver upon the inner and outer surfaces of the glass. The ancients, who knew nothing of electricity, could not conceive of thunder as anything but the result of a purely mechanical shock. Seneca, speaking of the fact that two hands struck together produced a loud noise, concluded from that, that the collision of two enormous clouds ought to sound with a very great crash. Again, he compares thunder, the sound of which is very sharp, even penetrating, to the noise made by the bursting of a bladder on a person's head. Lucretius also explains thunder by the shaking of the clouds, or their tearing asunder. The identity of lightning with electricity was first shown by Benjamin Franklin in a paper published in 1749, two years before his experiments with the storm clouds. At that epoch he had just recognized the power of points. Two ingenious experiments in which this power was put into play furnished him with a new analogy and suggested to him to verify by the storm clouds the truth of his conjectures. Having suspended by silk threads to the ceiling of his room a tube of gilt paper ten feet in length and a foot in diameter, Franklin charged it with electricity. Then presenting to the tube at the distance of a foot the point of a needle, the tube was instantly discharged. If, on the contrary, he presented to it a blunt body, an iron bolt or punch rounded at the end, he found it was necessary to put it within three inches before it could cause the discharge, which then, he said, took place with a sudden crackling. Suspending in the same way some great brass scales, the pans of which were supported by silk cords a foot from the floor, he electrified one of the pans. The twisting of the suspending cord caused the scales to turn. He placed the iron punch underneath, below a point of the circumference described. When the pan which was electrified passed over it, it lowered itself, came in contact with it, and thus discharged itself. But if the end of the punch was furnished with a needle, the point uppermost, the pan passed above it without approaching, and the discharge took place silently or if in its course the pan had come near enough for a spark to strike, it could not, because it would have been discharged beforehand. Now, says Franklin, if the fire of electricity and that of lightning be the same, as I have endeavored to show at large in a former paper, this pasteboard tube and these scales may represent electrified clouds. If a tube only ten feet long will strike and discharge its fire on the punch at two or three inches distance, an electrified cloud of perhaps 10,000 acres may strike and discharge on the earth at a proportionally greater distance. The horizontal motion of the scales over the floor may represent the motion of the clouds over the earth, and the erect iron punch a hill or high building, and then we see how electrified clouds passing over hills or high buildings at too great a height to strike 
may be attracted lower still within their striking distance. And lastly, if a needle fixed on the punch with its point upright, or even on the floor below the punch, will draw the fire from the scale silently, at a much greater than the striking distance, and so prevent its descending toward the punch, or if in its course it would have come nigh enough to strike, yet being deprived of its fire it cannot, and the punch is thereby secured from the stroke. I say if these things are so, may not the knowledge of this power of points be of use to mankind in preserving houses, churches, ships, etc., from the stroke of lightning, by directing us to fix on the highest parts of those edifices upright rods of iron made sharp as a needle and gilt to prevent rusting, and from the foot of these rods are wired down the outside of the building into the ground, or down round one of the shrouds of the ship, and down her side till it reaches the water? Would not these pointed rods probably draw the electrical fire silently out of a cloud before it came nigh enough to strike, and thereby secure us from that sudden and most terrible mischief? And thus it is that this discovery of Franklin's has been the means of saving much property from destruction. It is only of recent years that much has been added to the knowledge of the action of lightning rods and of their proper design and application. Hertz's experiments in electrical oscillations and the proof that lightning discharges were also oscillatory in their character enabled us to gain a better understanding of how to handle these tremendous discharges. It is now known that lightning discharges have a frequency of oscillation of about 500,000 periods per second. A recent and most beautiful application of condensers to the conduction of these lightning discharges to Earth may not be out of place here. If a lightning discharge strikes an electric line in its course to Earth, it may find it easier to pass back to the generator at the power station, jump through the insulation to the frame, and then to the Earth, then to leap over the insulators and down the pole to the Earth, the result being to destroy the generator. If, however, condensers are connected at various points along the line, it may be well to see what should happen. Every time that a condenser is charged and discharged, a current flows through the wire leading to it, one way on charging, the other on discharging. If this succession of charges and discharges takes place slowly, only a small amount will flow into and out of the condenser, but if it takes place rapidly, the current is proportionately increased without the pressure being any higher. Suppose such condensers to be connected on a line in which the current has a frequency of 60 oscillations or cycles per second, a small current will then flow continually. This current is of such a character that it does not mean a waste of power, but this is too advanced to be here explained. If, however, a lightning discharge having a frequency of 500,000 per second strikes a line, it will pass readily to Earth through the condensers instead of disrupting the insulation of the generators, the condensers being able to pass 500,000 divided by 60 as much current as would be passed from the line. There is still much to be learned of electrical disturbances in the atmosphere, and little is yet known of the causes producing them. It is a field of vast possibilities, and one whose study may result in giving man a partial control over atmospheric conditions. End of section 18